the collages I find to flow out of me and they're very responsive. It's almost like I'm putting together a puzzle that I don't know the solution for until I arrive at it. So I know when it doesn't work, when it doesn't work, when it doesn't work, it's starting to work. It's starting to work. Oh, wait, I took a wrong turn. Wait, let's try this. Oh, wait, that's working, you know, and then I'll sit with it. Maybe I'll show it to my husband or my kids. I'll get a reaction, you know, and when something like clicks over, then I know that I have something that I don't need to mess with any further. Like it's done, it's resolved. The great thing about collage too and the printed image is I can try it again in a different way if I want to. I can photograph one iteration. And if um, I want to go back to a previous version, then I have a photograph where I've recorded it. With painting, I feel like if you paint something out, you can't get it back again so easily. Like you will get a different, it, say you try to paint it back in, you'll get a different version of the thing that was originally there. So it's more of a journey with painting. I'm actually more challenged by painting. I learn a lot about painting from making the collages. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 285th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Amy Sackstetter, who spoke with me all about her work, her studio practice, and of course, how it evolved, how it got to where it is, where she's exploring painting as well as collage, installation. And of course, we break that all down on the podcast coming up. She's currently in a group exhibition called There Just Isn't at Asteroid Tiger Strikes Gallery in Greenville, South Carolina. She's also in a group exhibition at Janice Cherich Gallery called 18. You can see more of Amy's work by visiting her website, amysaxsetter.com. And of course, be sure to follow on Instagram, amysaxsetter underscore studio and her journal account, object underscore affinity on Instagram. If you're checking out Studio Break for the first time because of Amy's work, please head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes there. Each of our podcasts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites. You can listen right there on studiobreak.com or subscribe in Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to encourage folks, please subscribe to our new newsletter that will be coming out. Once again, we'll be doing a painting giveaway at the end of the year to kind of encourage folks to sign up, but that's going to also provide announcements of about shows coming up at Studio Break Gallery, opportunities for artists, and of course, new podcasts to listen to. So once again, head to studiobreak.com and subscribe. Studio Break is, of course, on social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those brief announcements, let's dive right into this interview with Amy Sachsetter. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Amy Sackstetter. How are you doing this morning? I am well. How are you, David? Excellent, excellent. And whereabouts are you? Are you? I'm in Ypsilanti, which is basically on top of Ann Arbor and down the road from DTW. It's great to be by an airport and Detroit. So Detroit is what I consider to be sort of like my my own personal art hub. There's the most going on nice. there. We also have Toledo. It's a sh- not too far of a drive from Chicago. Mm-hmm. occasionally Toronto if we're feeling wild. 
and it's an easy flight to New York. So sure, that's great. Too. Well, that's what's wonderful about being in the Midwest, right? I mean, you're no kind kidding. of yeah. you're closer to everything. But is is that where you're kind of from? The Midwest, o- Ohio, Michigan, where whereabouts? Mostly Midwestern. I mean, I was born in Georgia, so we can talk about okay. the South more if you're interested. But um, <laughs> we moved around a bunch when I was a kid. So we kind of came gradually north. I did live in Buffalo for a minute. Mm-hmm. Then when I was nine, we settled in Rockford, Illinois, which is very Midwestern, mm-hmm. just south of the Wisconsin border, 90 miles or so northwest of Chicago. So that's basically where I'm from. Okay. And then, you know, obviously um, we're going to break down all of the studio background current work, all sorts of things like that. Um, you know, I'm always kind of curious how creative uh, people were when they were younger. Is that something that you've always kind of been interested in making things with your hands, kind of drawing, painting, sculpt, well, yes. sculpture? I don't know. Again, I, I, I don't know that I was particularly drawn to sculpture, except I really enjoyed watching my grandfather like cut geodes in half and kind of being fascinated with stuff like that when I was younger. But it's funny you would mention that. I had a quite the avid rock collection and liked any kind of collecting and sorting and organizing and categorizing. And that's just made its way into my work. Um, as you can see, I was pretty creative both indoors and outdoors, like making little environments and worlds outside for my toys. I had a dollhouse that I was always making things for. The dollhouse had an enormous family, like maybe because I was brought up Catholic. Mm-hmm. My parents both have enormous family. <laughs> I read a lot. So I think that contributes to creativity. Like many novels starting in third grade, I was always reading at least one book. I was drawing and painting. And I guess I guess I was always making things 2D or 3D. Mm-hmm. But often environments. So I guess it makes sense that I'm either making objects for environments or sometimes working also in installation, but really come from a place of 2D because I feel like that's what was taught and reinforced for me Mm -hmm. in school, both primary and secondary. And was that something that you kind of like took every art course you could kind of thing or were you into sports and then got, got pulled back to art or... It's funny. My family is a sports family. Like my dad is into hockey. So my brother started playing hockey as a three-year-old and continues to play and he's 39. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I would have been fine left up to my own devices, but my parents decided I would be a soccer player in the third grade. Mm -hmm. So I was, I sort of drug into that kicking and screaming, but I ended up loving it. So I played soccer. I ended up playing like most sports at one point or another, but naturally given to my own proclivities, I was in every art class. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by all the projects we would do. There was this hot air balloon project we made out of foam and fabric in the third grade that I loved. There was a collage project in the sixth grade that just really spoke to me. And then in high school, I took art all the way through. I don't know if we had honors art. They were considered electives. We did not have AP. Mm -hmm. But I was pretty academically driven as well and took, you know, all the all the classes that I could and should for college prep and everything but definitely art and always French were were in there I'm not particularly good at French but uh it's part of my background perfect time to go back or to go to go to France um I have gone back a number of times yeah 
but not for a while. So was that something then when you were in high school and that, that like people were encouraging you to kind of pursue art? Were you thinking of it as like a, a track? Because again, that's always kind of fascinating. We, we did not have a lot of um, media choices. Like I wish we had had, I know of high schools that have ceramics or darkroom photography, or I went to a Catholic high school and Catholics are great about holistically educating people. I'm no longer Catholic, mm-hmm. but I got a really great, you know, college prep education, but it wasn't like an art prep high school or anything like that. So it was very much 2D focused. And I was, uh, I was sort of a tight renderer, um, pretty good at that in whatever, you know, tight media, even painting. I think I strayed a bit and was not as strong in painting as I was at like color pencil. Mm-hmm. There were a few projects like this low relief foam carving project that I loved, but we had a balsa wood carving project and I stuck the head of the X-Acto knife into my hand and that discouraged me, I think, (laughs) from 3D for quite a time. So I don't know. I was always just reinforced for 2D. My sophomore year, we did a watercolor unit and the teacher pulled me aside and gave me my own sheet of watercolor Mm -hmm. paper. Um telling me that it's fair it was nicer than what we were using in class I think it was from her own stash mm-hmm. and it just felt really special like um I was singled out and we had you know pretty big art classes like a lot of kids were into it so I did feel like I came up with the the art kids in the school and it was really good for me to have a bit of that because I was trying to figure out my identity sorting out who I was being academically driven being into art and also figuring out what was happening socially in high school, which mm-hmm. is challenging for many of us. So having art, I think, I don't know, it's always saved me from my demons. And then was that something then where your teachers were encouraging you to, to pursue it? or? Yeah, they were. Back in high school, they had the key awards, like the national level, silver key, golden key, and all of that. So we didn't have AP, but our teacher was really great about submitting our work for those awards. So I remember getting a number of those and feeling very reinforced and knowing that when I went to college, I would want art to be a major part of my life. I think I didn't feel confident majoring in it because I didn't know any practicing artists. I had no model for it. However, we went to like the Art Institute of Chicago on a field trip, and I was just very enamored with Chagall's American Windows. I'm still really obsessed with this cobalt like lapis mm-hmm. color um and certain artists that i think people are into when they're younger like mc escher honestly i would see these posters in the mall and that was my exposure to to quote unquote fine art at that point so certainly not much in the way of contemporary art i may have had an inkling about like jackson pollock at that stage mm-hmm. the abex painters but it was mostly like impressionism some post-impressionism. That was the extent of my knowledge. So, so what did you wind up doing, then doing? Where did you go for undergraduate school? And, you know, did that involve any kind of more like continuation of, of art education or? For undergrad, um, I went to the University of Dayton in Ohio. And I was really fortunate. My parents, uh, my, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. So I have these medical parents and these Appalachian roots on my mom's side of the family. And so they didn't necessarily come from a lot of money themselves. And so to their credit, they really championed my brother and I. So my brother is now a writer Mm -hmm. and a professor as well of writing. 
they championed our creative pursuits and said, as long as we got good grades in school, they were cool with us pursuing whatever we wanted. However, once again, I didn't have that model for what it was like to be a professional artist. So I went to school undeclared and eventually settled on an English major that seemed like something that there could be jobs in. I abstractly thought, oh, I could be a book editor or something because I like to read and write. And then I minored in art and French because they seemed like I wanted to keep them close to me. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, I wish I had double majored, you know, majored in art as well. My freshman year, I took drawing one. Mm-hmm. And as you and I know, that's taught mostly with charcoal. And I was used to graphite, tight graphite rendering, like copies or gridding mm-hmm. photographs. So when I'm shown an easel and a large sheet of paper and given a stick of charcoal and told to draw, it it scared me away. It wasn't, I wasn't necessarily adept at it. I wasn't used to drawing from life in that way, like mm-hmm. from observation or perception. I was used to copying. So I took a step back and I think maybe that's what scared me away from double majoring in art. Mm-hmm. I found my way though, because 2D design was the class for me. I had Beth Edwards teach um, my 2D design class and that was all achromatic and all very formal. It was very like Bauhaus based and we painted with ruling pens and these fine layers of fluid acrylics. It was very much like out of what a designer would have been doing er earlier on. And then we had a second semester of 2D, which which is pretty unique called design and color. And that was Peter Gooch who taught that. And I was hooked on painting, color. I never took drawing two. I never took 3D design. And then I went on to take the full track of painting classes. So I was like an art major, like Mm -hmm. I performed like an art major, but I was a minor. Meanwhile, I'm having to write all these papers and uh, do all of this other work that the majors weren't necessarily having to do as much because they just had to fulfill their gen eds. So it was very demanding, but it served me really well because now I'm able to use all of those skills for my English major to to write for grants and to just communicate better, to help others like edit when I'm teaching students about artist statements or things like that. So it's never been something that I've regretted. And so, you know, kind of think about that experience, you know, was there any kind of like, you know, senior senior show or like something that would they would kind of have you, you know, make a portfolio or something like that to kind of wrap that as a minor or? It was also somewhat circuitous. Like I had um, Dayton artist Gene Kohler was my boss in the slide library. And so I was sitting there over a light table, you know, a number of hours per day. And Gene and I would just talk and chit chat. And she ended up offering a study abroad trip to France that happened between my junior and senior years in college. So I didn't even know I wanted to pursue art. Peter pulled me aside, I think, in painting two. He said, if you want to be a painter for your life, like you can do that if you want to. And so that was appealing to me. So I took painting three, but I still didn't really have a sense of what that would entail. Going to France with Jean and doing plein air painting, having a view of Mont Saint-Bitoire out my window of the little complex we stayed in in Aix-en-Provence. So we were in Paris for a few days in Aix-en-Provence. I had gone also on a study abroad trip to France in high school. So that kind of set the stage for this 
desire to go back. Mm-hmm. And we would go on all these day trips. We would go to Arles and we would go to Cassis and we would go to these ochre cliffs where pigment is sourced and paint among these like bright orange and yellow cliffs or a lavender field or a sunflower field. It was very bucolic. So when I returned, I became very uh, determined. I did the thing you do in the 90s. I chopped off all my hair. There was a boyfriend breakup. <laughs> it was all um, very cathartic and and would stay up all night painting in in my studio stall in the painting room. It was really important, I think, that they gave us seniors our own studios. Mm-hmm. It, it was They were just stalls around the periphery of the room. And that's something, as an aside, that I've been reflecting on for my own students. And just last semester, I piloted senior studios in around one of the rooms I was teaching in. So there were seven stalls and seven seniors got this like workspace of their own. And I think it makes such a huge difference. So that's something I'm going to try to do more of where I teach at Eastern Michigan University. Um, so you asked about a senior show. I didn't have one because I was a minor, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not sure if people had their own. There was a big to-do that was like a group senior show. Um, and I was applying left and right for shows because I was told how important it was to build my CV. Mm-hmm. So I ended up winning some prizes and best of shows. I remember it was the first season of Art 21. Do you remember this in mm-hmm. 2001? Right. Steve Martin was hosting it. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Mm-hmm. And I would just sit there writing out my little labels by hand um, for my slides and s- s- mailing them all over the place. And I also was applying to loads of grad schools. School was the thing for me. Like I understood the structure of school. So I did not, I was waiting tables at the time and I did not fancy myself waiting tables full time. I didn't know what, what people did in their time off. Like I couldn't see myself as someone who waited tables and made art full time for even a period of time. So I decided to go directly to grad school or try anyway and applied to loads of schools and got into some of them and went and interviewed at some of them. They were mostly in the Midwest Mm -hmm. because that's what I know. I was just so like green and uninformed in many ways. So in hindsight, I might have taken time off. I usually advise students to take some time off. But it wasn't, it didn't make sense for me. I did have this like summer after my senior year where I lived in a house with some friends and didn't work anywhere, which was unusual. I always had jobs like to make money and biked all over Dayton and would take my French easel on my shoulder on my bike and paint all over the city doing urban plein air painting. And also Peter let me use his studio at Front Street He wasn't working in there that summer. So I got to just feel like such like a grown up artist. And I was 21 or two. It was like really formative. I made an immense batch of stretchers and moved to Illinois, got another job waiting tables and went to grad school at Northern Illinois University. That's the one I settled on because it it would be funded. Sure. And, And I'm curious, where did where did Chautauqua fit into this then in terms of that timeline? Was that something that happened before grad school or during? I know a lot of a lot of my peers at Chautauqua had just graduated from undergrad. I was one year into grad school when I went. So I started grad school September 2001. Mm-hmm. And immediately after starting, as you know, September 11th happened. Mm-hmm. And so that shook everyone up, obviously. 
And I was doing a lot of plein air painting at the time. I was painting like individual small panels and then I would assemble them into one large sort of puzzle pieced staccato landscape painting in the studio. And then I would make another abstract painting from that painting. So a kind of recursive thing. I'm still working very recursively in the studio. But there were all these American flags everywhere. Remember, everyone had them on their cars and on their homes. And I would go into cul-de-sacs in suburbia and paint all the houses with their American flag hanging from them. So a month into school, I had a solo show because I was working so much called Experiments in Suburbs. And there were, I mean, this speaks to your work, like painting houses and residential spaces. I'm sure you noticed like trends that happen like that, like Mm -hmm. um, the summer of 2020, all of people's lawn signs, like Black Lives Matter lawn signs or supporting a particular politician or whatever. So at the time it was American flags. And so it made its way into my work, like this kind of visual rhythm. It seems like then something that you were very interested in. Obviously, I'm assuming that that kind of evolved through your your studies um, as a graduate student. Um, But was that something that was informed at all then by that experience in Chautauqua? Because I know, again, oddly enough, I remember writing uh, very poetically, like in a journal, like, this is what I want to do. You know, like we had had an assignment. I mean, I think we had to make 30 paintings in a weekend or something like that, or just something that seemed impossible but did you have one of those like oh my gosh this is definitely the moment that i know that i'm turned a corner or something like terms of that experience chautauqua was really a strange experience for me it was amazing it's it's bucolic as well aren't all the buildings on the campus like slightly smaller scale it feels like you're on a film set a little bit (laughs) it could be (laughs) it it felt like being in a david lynch movie a little bit just being on the campus Mm -hmm. But the faculty were amazing. Like I worked with Judy Glantzman and Barbara Grossman and Stuart Diamond mostly. There were other faculty there as well. I made a lot of paintings while I was there. Something that I was conflating by the time I left my first year of grad school for that first summer off, I had a three-year program. So there were two summers Mm -hmm. in the program. I was starting to kind of take the landscape and insert personal experience and dreams into my experience with the land and landscape and place. So growing up, a really important place for me was my mom's family farm located in the Appalachian Mountains of North Georgia. So she grew up, as I mentioned, without a lot. She was the youngest of six and the only girl. So she had five older brothers. They all worked the farm. They didn't have running water or phones or electricity for a good period of her childhood. All those things were eventually introduced over time. She said she felt rich because they had 85 acres and she would just roam all over the land and play and there was a river. And so I grew up going to this place because my family still shares the land and there's all these creeks and we would hunt for salamanders and there's red Georgia clay and all of these sparkling rocks full of mica and all of that sort of informed me and the house itself like the whole landscape was so kind of magical the topography of it I would have dreams about it all the time and in uh, Chautauqua we were close enough to Buffalo New York where I lived in second grade so I conflated for some reason the Georgia land 
and this old Victorian house that we rented in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. They're both very old. And so I would conflate them in my dreams. And I ended up making, I went back and visited my childhood home in Buffalo while I was at Chautauqua and made plein air paintings sitting on the curb across the street from the house, mm-hmm. which had changed, of course, in whatever, 20 years since I had been there. No, it was more like 15 years since I had been there at the time. The paintings, I think, weren't particularly successful. Like I made a lot of them. I was working through some stuff, but I stumbled into the print studio and making intaglio prints of these remembered floor plans and then making mono prints over top of the intaglio floor plans. Mm -hmm. That is what I came out of Chautauqua with. And it's just one more instance in my life where I set out to do one thing and then another thing kind of finds me and carries me away. And that keeps happening. So I have all of these like cycles in my life where I come back to certain things uh, and journeys where I move off to the side and, and return again. And so Chautauqua was certainly one of those experiences. And is that something then that when you went back to school, you were kind of then kind of more interested and maybe kind of... You know, mm-hmm. learning more printmaking, kind of exploring some more of that, and then also some other yeah. media, because that's obviously something yeah. that I am super fascinated, you know, in terms of different approaches to different works. And I think painting is my through line. Like, it's always there. It's always informing my work. Like, even when I was making the prints, I was painting with printmaking ink onto the surface of the copper plate. I was doing a reductive painting process, essentially, to make monoprints. Those were all achromatic because I wasn't really using any color inks at the time. When I returned to school, I think I just, there were some particular traumas happening at the time, things happening in my family, things happening socially. And I think I was kind of pulling inward a bit and looking less out at the world and the landscape and digesting place through my personal lived experience and working through some stuff. I think I hadn't really had time to do that yet. So grad school was where it happened for me and where I, because I didn't get the latitude to roam and explore in undergrad across media, that I did that in grad school. So I was taking this idea of the floor plan and transferring it onto surfaces and then oil painting on top of it and then scratching back through so you could see it again or wiping back through. So I had a lot of bodies of work that I moved through and experiments that I moved through in grad school. I think that's a benefit of a three-year program, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't have the experience of a two-year program, but it worked for me. It's what I needed. I think at the time, I ended up in grad school with two sort of tracks of thesis work. Like I had a three-person show in Chicago at Three Walls, which was this awesome gallery and residency program at the time. That was in 2004. And that was with sort of sculptural work. So I was playing with installation, sculptural work, objects from childhood. The painting work that was in my thesis show on campus was from photographs. I was taking childhood objects and freezing them in like these, encasing them in blocks of ice, Mm -hmm. setting them in a setting, they would start to melt, photographing that, and painting these very loose paintings that people compared to Luke Tymon's sort of softened approach to painting, although our surfaces looked very different. 
Um, I wasn't thinking too much about him at the time, but that's what I would get in critiques. So I think it was good because I was loose, like I was very loose at that stage. And I, I meander back and forth between tightening up and loosening up in my work still. But I think that that was a good place to 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 land in that program. It seems like then too, by kind of exploring these different processes or you know starting one thing, going through this process and coming up with something else, that maybe that is where some of the more abstract kind of language starts to kind of develop in terms of how you start building your, your different bodies of work. Yeah, I love that you said abstract language. So a huge word for me that comes up both in my work and teaching or concept is idiosyncrasy. I feel like what makes us individual? How do we make our very own personal work? And I think we all are somewhat idiosyncratic. How do we tap into that? So the more our work turns on itself, the more we examine it or work through different visual languages, I think we find our own work that way. Mm -hmm. So we can't really find it by looking out at other people's work. We can certainly be inspired by other people or we know what we like. You know, I, I keep a list in my sketchbook of, of peers who I consider to be like my art family, like people who, with like who I would like to show alongside mm -hmm. people who are accessible. If I'm curating a show, I can contact them. Like I can email them personally. Um, and then like blue chip or deceased artists, I, I consider to be like lineage, like people who I'm looking to them as, I don't know, inspiration for the, the roots, our foundations in, in art. Or in grad school, I was playing a bit with abstraction, like taking the landscape and then abstracting from it, like removing myself from the original source. Mm -hmm. And I'm still doing that. Like I'm doing it again, I should say. I've come back around to it. I have in my house, one of the first paintings I made in grad school. It's big. It's like... 48 by 60 inches and right next to it I have a painting from 2019 and they inform like they inform each other and I can see that I'm just borrowing ideas again that I thought I hadn't thought about in years but they're still there yeah that's super interesting I love you know thinking about those relationships because I think they often come back around I even again really like the idea of I've always been more connected with people that I can talk to as an artist mm -hmm. than, than necessarily okay. somebody that you're cracking a book and, you know, that's your, right. that's your thing. I, I mean, again, that's probably why, you know, we have this podcast here. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's just, I don't know, that stuff is just so fascinating to me. Um, and then, you know, to think about that kind of like experience kind of wrapping then where you kind of then, you know, doing works on paper, doing installations, doing paintings, all these different kind of investigations or was it kind of something that was more singular in terms of of that at that time i never limited myself i think maybe it's because i was naive but as far as i was concerned i didn't have a particular hierarchy in mind even though the art world that there are hierarchies there like painting has always been sort of up on this pedestal i did painting because it called to me like and then of course it was reinforced in school, right? But if I had an idea to do something in grad school, I might not have done it particularly well. I may have not had the skills to do it, like. but I was gonna try it anyway. I was gonna make my own panels, uh, wood panels. And my uncle had given me this, in hindsight, extremely dangerous and scary table saw. <laughs> and I had it in my studio and I would r try to run a board through it to cut the edge on a bevel. 
and it would kind of shimmy across the floor. It was not an okay thing, but I was always, I'm lucky I'm like fully intact here, but um, I was always going to try to do the thing, even if I didn't have the skills for it. And I'm pretty resourceful about seeking out people to, to help me. But because I had so many ideas of my own and so many, so much I wanted to do and say in painting, if there was a downside, it meant that I wasn't in grad school taking too many other classes. Like I didn't take ceramics. I didn't take sculpture. I did take printmaking. I would take an art history class that really spoke to me. But my focus was, was really on 2D work, mm-hmm. on painting. So I would always come somehow back to like painting or drawing. And even drawing I see as a kind of painterly pursuit when I do it. However, uh, there have been times where I've gotten very much in, maybe it's the floor plan person in me. Like I would draw floor plans as a little girl, picturing this like 80s, like penthouse apartment in New York. I think that was movies having an influence on me. And I would draw a floor plan of what my amazing penthouse would look like. I didn't know what that would entail uh, growing up to, to have something like that. But I've always thought in terms of like spaces and floor plans and organization, So I do have a diagrammatic precision as well. And so I think my work sometimes functions best when I have this loose reactive work and then this precise um, rendering and they somehow play off each other in the same work or body of work or, or in bodies of work that speak to each other. And I think that's when I'm at my best. That makes sense. And, And again, it seems like there's always like a balance between these different modes of working. And I'm, I'm curious, are you somebody that keeps like a sketchbook? I know that seems like such a loaded question for some folks, like the idea that you're going to be, you know, stuck at a bus station drawing something um, and that's going to lead to something. Or are you kind yeah. of somebody that kind of likes to jump around? Because I know that, you know, especially with some of the, the works on paper, it seems like, you know, there might be discarded remnants of other works and mm-hmm. um, things that have kind of come before. So I could imagine you know, in a weird way, like having that almost be like a, a balancing act now where if like you don't want to investigate like a painting or something that might require more time, it's, it's like I can start taking these different components and seeing how they, how they feel when they're arranged. Right. Arrangement is a great word as well. That definitely is like infused into my being, the idea of arranging things. I mean, you can maybe tell from my studio, which you see behind me, but my house is very much like a a, a work in progress. Like I'm always uh, arranging, rearranging, adding, subtracting. I have a sketchbook, which I think of as more of a visual journal. Like it's there when I need it. And the extensions of my sketchbook, I think, are my phone because it's always with me. I also Mm -hmm. have two little kids. So there've been times in my life where it's not handy to have a sketchbook close by, but it is handy. My phone is right there, right? So I have a notes app on my phone where I just keep a long running list of all of the spontaneous art ideas that kind of pop into my head. And I also photograph continually. So I started making these collages in 2015 and they originally came out of my photographing source material for paintings, but I started printing them. And then I had all of these other images on my phone that were particularly idiosyncratic to me from exploring the world. This is how I experienced the landscape at this time in my life. Like 
I'm not necessarily traveling as much because there's little kids, then there's COVID and my world has shrunk and become much more localized. But my, my world is still my, you know, I'm still like, regardless of where I am, whether it's right in front of me, like, like on the tabletop in front of me or on my kitchen counter, or it's out there on a walk, I can photograph something that I find to be particular or peculiar or um, that resonates. And that's what makes its way into my work now, visually. And there is a lot of like arranging and rearranging of those elements. So for a long time, when I had the time, it would come in as drawing and I would make these really elaborate vellum maps for drawings. And then I would take the elements that I would photograph and, and draw them. Then it became much more direct at an, a necessary point in my life when I had babies to just use the images themselves, print them on Reeves BFK or Tiziano paper, a Fabriano, because that's what I had been formerly drawing on. So they feel soft, like, like drawings. People always ask me like, what am I looking at? Like, what is this? And it's a photo, but because it's printed on these fine art papers, it softens the image. And so it, it doesn't read so much as a photo all the time. Well, and to kind of, you know, direct that towards a body of work, you know, you mentioned around like 2015. So, so what mm-hmm. work would we be talking about this um, that would kind of encapsulate that? Cause that would be kind of fun to, to highlight right. some of it. And again, there's, there's tons of work. So I'm going to remind everybody it's uh, amysaxstetter.com, plenty of stuff to see. Right. So if we're talking 2015, I had my first child in 2015. So before that, like in 20. 20- 13, I got to go to Berlin and live there for two months at a residency, the Tocht residency. And I also, for the third time, visited Iceland and went back to Reykjavik for the STEAM residency in October, which October is a great time of year to be in Iceland. The whole, all the hills turn, they don't have a ton of trees on this volcanic island, but they have lichen. It's really beautiful the way all of the the mountains turn our fall colors, but it's the surface of the mountain turning that color. It's very interesting. So color-wise, it was intriguing. The the series Cairn, which is under works on paper on my website, is from 2015. And that started in Berlin in the summer of 2013. And I was making that work in Iceland that same year. And then continued to make that work throughout 2014 and 15 until my son was born in April. Bit of a pause. And then I kind of turned over to collage. So you can see a kind of break between, if you're on my website, the Cairn series and the very next one up is Generations. And that's that's collage. But you can see on the Cairn series, I was still collaging paper. I was making spilled marks. Uh, I was stretching paper and working wet into wet with these spilled marks. And then I had these sort of cairn forms I was making. And then I could work back into these visual stacks much more precisely in the way that I discussed earlier. So I have this gesture and then I have a precision element. And then there's a kind of back and forth conversation. So I was working conceptually with the ideas of artifacts, of human presence in the landscape, like graffitied tags or cairns or spray painted directives on the ground, surveyors tags, things like that, all over the place in Iceland, back here in the States, 
uh, and also souvenirs. Like what do we take away from an experience, especially in the environment? So we may collect rocks or stones. We may collect shells, driftwood. And, and the fact that you have humans leaving very artificial, sometimes fluorescent signals of our passing in the environment, and then our taking away natural things, putting these together into the same work and, and again, creating a contrast was really intriguing to me. So I think that my work at this stage in my life, becoming a parent, I was thinking more about the environment, obviously, and our humanity's interactions with the environment, my own interactions with the environment, like responsibly, what are we doing? And so that's just built on itself throughout having another child then in 2018, working through more of these collages. So you see a lot of this like artifact souvenir, you start to see detritus come into it. There was this beach in Iceland that had a lot of refuse watch, wash back up on shore and it's all beautiful. It's been tumbled by the, the waves in the ocean. And so even the sole of a shoe looks like this amazing, interesting looking artifact or pieces of rope from a lobster net or something like that. So that's the kind of stuff I would collect and would make its way into the work. Well, it's it's interesting too, because there's like this figure ground relationship that I think is mm. pretty consistent, but changes, yeah. you know, depending on the body of works to mm -hmm. make sure that I'm getting this clear though, for the, uh, the Karen uh, series, it might be like you're kind of, you know, seeing some sort of stimuli that then you're kind of putting into this, this space. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's interesting because sometimes, you know, like we think about like this group of, of works, you know, they might kind of have more neutral grounds. Some of them might have more colorful grounds, but then there's also like a lot of this layering through these, you know, stacks of what you might read as like objects or figures. And that always kind of shows up slightly different or evolves in a different way. And like, so, you know, that's something that's something that gets carried over into the, the generations work, but then in, in just a different way. And again, it's interesting because you'll have stuff where you start breaking the edge versus bodies of work where you're not breaking the edge. And I don't know, it's, it's just really interesting. I, did you say figure ground? I feel like another thing that seems like it's always there is this like figure ground relationship. I I'm really like attracted to objects like particular objects, like I'm very much a magpie or bower bird or crow or whatever, any of these birds will do. So what, once again, with the collection, the categorization, I think it's evident in the work, like there's always an objectness and then an environment for that object somehow, right? If you come, if you come to paintings, there's one in translated expanded called Watershed. It's the first one in that series that appears on my website. So for listeners, it's like, it's an oil painting and it's done from observation on my computer screens. So it's built kind of traditionally. I had to sort of relearn how to paint in 2019 because I had had these babies and I have health issues. I have autoimmune, an autoimmune condition and oil paint traditionally, the way I had been taught the kind of Ralph Mayer mix of um, Damar, linseed, and terp was no longer working for me, like it would make me physically ill. So Kimberly Brooks was on a podcast, I think it was on Erica's podcast, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I like your work. And um, she was promoting safe oil painting practices. She had a book out, uh, she would give you an advanced copy if you took her workshop, and I wanted this book. So I took a workshop with her, 
and had to, uh, I chose to pull all the solvents and dryers and varnishes from my work. So I no longer use that stuff, but I had, it was a sort of felt like a clumsy process. Like I was relearning how to paint. Like I didn't paint from middle of 2017 through middle of 2019. There was no, no painting in my life except for some gouache. And so this is me like relearning how to paint after a lot of, of, of experience. So building it up with traditional layers of paint. But the original photographs for this work were taken in Iceland way back in 2013. There was a collage made in 2015, I think. And many iterations of the collages, I'll photograph them as I'm messing with them. I mean, it could look like a stop motion sort of as I'm playing with them. So I chose to work with these kind of discarded collages that never became anything. I have photos of them. And this is what made it into this oil painting. So there's often a kind of quite a, a history to any given work. Unfortunately, I'm not a very fast painter because I feel like that history is what I need to make the work. I'm really fast at collage. Um, I'm fast at ceramics. Now that's the thing that I do now. But um, painting seems to require me to work through all of these phases. Even this painting has this kind of orange glow around it, which came out of making these silver-leafed construction fences after Trump's election. So in 2017 and 18, that's what I was doing. I was silver-leafing these large paper-cut fences. Once again, not limiting myself, right? Just doing what felt like was needed at the time, thinking about divisions in the country between groups of people, safe, thinking about safety. And so this orange glow would, would emanate onto the wall. And then I also have these styrofoam, I'll show it to you right now, the styrofoam packing form mm -hmm. curio <laughs> cabinet of sorts in my studio. And because it's all white on the inside, I'll put reflective or fluorescent objects in, in, the, in the recesses of it and it will glow. And so I use photographs from this this, these packing forms in my collages a lot. And this sort of beautiful sunsetty glow comes through in a lot of the work. However, it's made through the most like caution color we have, this fluorescent orange, which can mean like safety or alert, or it calls note it to itself in a natural, in the natural environment. So I think that that dualistic quality of that color is really compelling to me. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the relationship of the photographs to kind of all your work. But literally, that was something that I had written a note about. I'm like, I wonder if these are like, you know, photograph styrofoam pieces or if they're just discarded like remnants or something like that. But I think that's really fascinating because, you know, I, I know a lot of artists will kind of, you know, work from things that they kind of observe or kind of you know, maybe kind of go past as opposed to collect or compose. There's that word again, um, yeah. or arrange, I think right, <laughs> is, right. is what we kind of talked about earlier, but that, that part's really fascinating to me. And I think one of the things that's interesting too, about the, the works on paper, it seems like a number of them. And I think you spoke to this a little bit earlier, kind of include those kind of archival or not, you know, archival printed kind of, um, media, but they start to kind of become a little bit more, I don't want to say recognizable, but they kind of give a little bit more of an idea of a place or like a location that's got all these different elements that are abstracted, whereas the paintings kind of maybe move a little bit away from that in the sense of... Yeah. 
the paintings definitely no longer look like landscapes, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But if I'm out walking in my neighborhood and my neighbor does this bizarro thing with their blueberry bush where they cover it with this big black net with colorful clips all over it, they have made the most marvelous sculpture in their yard that I photograph. And that thing, like part of their yard might make their way into then a collage. Mm -hmm. It's not something I would want to paint, but it's something that feels like I have to sit up and take notice and wants to make its way then into a collage. So when I paint, I feel like there's a distillation process from imagery like that, where if the the neighbor's yard part of it is not that important to me, it won't make its way into the painting. Mm -hmm. Whereas it can, I will allow it to live in the collage, if that makes sense. Well, and I'm curious relative to like the editing process, like obviously like in, in paintings, you can cover something up, you can layer over it in terms exactly. of the collage. Are you like, you know, sticking with the things that you're, you know, kind of messing around with in terms of how they're composed or are you able then to kind of just combine different elements until they kind of seem right? Cause I, th I think that part is really interesting yeah. to me because you might, again, you might kind of take all these different experiences and then collage something together but but i don't know maybe maybe talk about that before i make assumptions <laughs> right the collages i find to flow out of me and they're very responsive it's almost like i'm putting together a puzzle that i don't know the solution for until i arrive at it mm -hmm. so i know when it doesn't work when it doesn't work when it doesn't work it's starting to work it's starting to work oh wait i took a wrong turn wait let's try this oh, wait, that's working, you know, and then I'll sit with it. Maybe I'll show it to my husband or my kids. I'll get a reaction, you know, and when something like clicks over, then I know that I have something that I don't need to mess with any further. Like it's done. It's resolved. The great thing about collage too, and the printed image is I can try it again in a different way. If I want to, I can photograph one iteration and if um, I want to go back to a previous version, then I have a photograph where I've recorded it. With painting, I feel like if you paint something out, you can't get it back again mm -hmm. so easily. Like you will get a different, it, say you try to paint it back in, you'll get a different version of the thing that was originally there. So it's more of a, a journey with painting. I'm actually more challenged by painting. I learn a lot about painting from making the collages. I feel like the collage comes much more easily. And there was this sixth grade experience with sur a surrealism's collage project <laughs> that that really spoke to me. And I feel like some iteration of collage has been in my life also throughout my life. It's just interesting, you know, to think about the relationships between the, the works on paper and then the paintings. Because mm. the other thing that I start kind of seeing, and I know we talked about figure ground relationships, but there are these interesting spatial relationships um, that start to kind of happen. And especially, you know, with some of these foam works, uh, like like the one that's like on the splash page. Um, yeah. Curio for the yeah. Echo Keepers. Like yeah. it, it looks like there's also like elements from that photograph where, and I'm assuming like a curio cabinet, like things are kind of like tucked away in there, but then things that are laying over the top. So it starts to kind of play around with that. But then you also notice it in some of the paintings that kind of also stand out to me. So, you know, like the second one on the most recent series, um, the pandemic patina. Yeah. It looks like there's actually carved out things where you can kind of, or, you know, canvas removed. So you can see like a little shelf of like a stretch art bar behind it. 
Yeah, that's new. Pandemic patina has um, a painting underneath of it that I don't like at all. And, and and I made that painting as a response, the initial painting that's underneath. You can kind of see in the middle of it above the bottom cutout, there's a bit of a flower coming through mm-hmm. one of the paver stone shapes. So it had this face of flowers and it was a cathartic response making that initial painting to the first months of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was just angry, like being stuck at home with my kids, like like feeling a bit abandoned, like our country, mm-hmm. the world has no solution for like school is the only safety net. Like, what are we all supposed to do? You want us to keep working while our children are at home? And it just seemed absurd to me. So there's this painting that's not very good underneath of there. But um, <laughs> the, I think that's, that's, again, part of the process. Like, maybe it has to live under there for this painting to exist. So it was really freeing to paint right over it and even cut into it. And the paver shapes come from, once again, the aperture of my own world being so closed by having small children and then the pandemic so that the front walkway into my home with these slate pavers set into concrete became like a kind of armature for my own experience of the landscape like I was crossing this threshold every single day multiple times a day going in and out into my front yard, chasing my children around, whatever. So I started to use this format, thinking about peeling back pavers, what it would reveal underneath and thinking of them as windows and doors and portals and shapes and holders of color. And sometimes they're covered in like bent water balloons or chalk drawings or whatever my kids are doing on that surface. So it made its way into a lot of the collages and many paintings. Like there's a whole series of paintings called Grounded Ungrounded where that's where I was relearning oil painting mm-hmm. in 2019 and just working with that motif of the the pavers in my front walkway. And I started cutting away some of them to reveal the substructure. I started in 2020 and finished in 2021 thinking about this silver leaf Like one thing that's important in my work is our materials that have some kind of resonance to them. So for example, starting ceramics in that same year, it was important to me to take this class at Oxbow on foraging Michigan clay. Like it is clay from my state, from my Great Lake where I live. It's not mine, but it's where I find myself residing at this point in my life. So I'm wary of this idea of like ownership of the land and landscape. And we're all guests here on this land, obviously. But I'm really interested in something that has had some kind of resonant life. Like, for example, I've made paintings that feature chunks of ice from a particular glacial lagoon in Iceland. And within that same, it's a drawing, within that same drawing, it's um, diluted with glacial water from that same lagoon that a friend brought back to me in a jar in her shoe um, (laughs) from Iceland. So uh, I don't know, like the silver leaf, I love that it continues to patina. It breathes, it has this continual response to the atmosphere. And so the piece will always sort of shift and change. So I've been working with silver leaf for quite a long time. And now I'm playing with 
cutting holes into the paintings that are behind me that are just started and embedding ceramic tiles into them. So that's kind of the next step beyond the the, what you see here with pandemic patina. Yeah. I, I love too the way that you kind of get a little bit of that shadow kind of interference or, you know, some, it might kind of pick up a color. I feel like there's so many, so many things I'm sure that as you're cutting into these, that you're starting to kind of think about ways that you can kind of push these things. Something exactly. that, that we haven't really talked about much um, is color though. I would imagine maybe some of the, the color choices might start with that initial exploration and then a response to the, the colors that you have in, in that, that work that are going. Cause they, you know, we'll yeah. go from subdued in one to being really vibrant in another one, but maybe talk a little about the, that relationship to color that you might have. I do best. I think when I have a referent, so thus all the f- photographs. Mm-hmm. So I have been known to like take color aid and put pieces of it up in my studio to cry, try to come up with images or uh, color stories or color schemes or whatever but that doesn't work as well for me i i do best when i have existing colors in a source and i can then like splice them together one of my intentions for the most recent body of collages which is the echo keepers was to explore color through the collages and then to have that color inform the paintings so that i would have the co- the quote unquote color problem not solved, but I wouldn't have to spend all that time. It wouldn't be another thing that would stop me up in the painting process. Mm -hmm. There would already be color relationships solved for me that I could then draw upon. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I really find it fascinating, again, the the relationship to photographs, just because I don't know that people necessarily bring that to your attention when you are at an opening. Are they they going, oh, photographs, or what what types of things do people kind of hit you up with in terms of what what your work kind of makes them think about? Because I, you know, get a sense of what you're thinking about, but... Uh, I think it depends on the work. I think some, some folks may have trouble with its diversity of media and Mm -hmm. imagery in the work i am the most drawn to artists who also work across practices i think or have who draw upon multiple media and it's simply the way my brain works i guess is to go back and forth and then create a conversation among media once we get going talking about the work they seem to be pretty interested in that idea of the process. I had a three-person show with Jennifer Bach Nelson and Kelly A. Mueller, two close friends from graduate school. We had a three-person show at Buckham Gallery in Flint in the fall of 21. And it was a really nice show. Like um, the gallery is beautiful. Folks apply to Buckham Gallery's call, call for entries every year. It's a gorgeous gallery, amazing staff. And I had these tables fabricated to showcase the collages not framed. I love just sitting over them and seeing them as objects or like maps. I love a paper object, like a map. And I wanted people to experience them that way. So this showcase table is tall. It has a kind of A-frame top to it. The series is under installations on my website called Tomorrow Archive. Mm -hmm. And many of the objects that are depicted in the collages or even like nestled into that recess in pandemic patina, for example, are shown alongside 
the collages physically on that table. So some display is something I'm also really interested in probably being a kind of like someone who's interested in objects and arrangement and categorization again. So making this kind of display table was a really important experience for me. I did not make it. I had it fabricated by Rob Todd in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who's amazing. And folks seemed to really get that. Like they, there was also a display in that same show of the, of many of the collages just framed on the wall. I have like 80 of these collages now. So there's many, many of them, but I reserved out this set of the new ones specifically to not frame, to show unmediated without the glare of glass in front of them shown kind of propped up. And when people saw them together displayed in this way with the objects, I think something clicked for people where they're like, oh, there's this conversation happening. And I'm like, yes, that's what it feels like to be in my head. Um, that's what it feels like to be in my studio as where there are these stories that run through. Some of the objects are really old. Some of them are from maybe my childhood. Some of them I find in the environment. Some of them I've made. Some things like I've silver leafed styrofoam before and just let that patina. And those objects were sitting there. So I think people people get it when I show the work in a way that it provides context. And so that's where I'm really intrigued in residing right now is showing the work in a way that creates like a display that gives people a sense of where the work is coming from. Makes total sense. And again, it's something that's really fascinating to be able to kind of you know see an object and start to kind of think about the relationships to a collage. And then to see that in relationship to a painting or a series of collages. And so, again, that really makes sense given a lot of the things that you said in terms of your interest being pretty diverse because they all kind of like feed that that narrative and that exploration and build off of that. And again, I said it earlier, abstract language. But I mean, you know, I think anybody that kind of works you know, abstracting from even nature obviously kind of develops these things, these tropes, these... I don't know, their style, if you will. So, I mean, again, that, right. that becomes well, really fascinating. Well, you have that with your work. Like, you have the the intersection of the representational and then these, like, abstracted, planar forms mm -hmm. so that the work kind of toggles back and forth. And I think in your work and in the work I love the most in art, there's this uh, dialogue between the abstract and potentially the real or or something like, creating a, a, a convincing space, but you don't quite know what's happening, like what is creating that space. I love when questions are kind of raised in work. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's an exciting place to explore from right now as well, too. Yeah. Interesting thing about the the works on paper to me, too, is that they seem so massive um, when you kind of see them relative to like and again, we're always kind of, you know, stuck with our devices, especially, yeah, you know, you right. kind of jump back to pandemic times. It's like this, how everybody's yeah. experiencing art for a chunk of time. Um, right. But I think it's just really interesting to think about that relative to uh, the scale of them, because you think of them as, you know, maybe being really large, but then, you know, they're, they're kind of intimate, you know, they're small. They are. They're A4 size. So they're like European letter size, mm -hmm. because in 20, what year was it? 2009, I went to Budapest, bought a pack of Fabriano Tiziano paper, started a series of drawings from there. And I've since then just maintained that size. I'm always working on A4 sized something, drawings, collages, now 
some some left-handed drawings as we were discussing mm-hmm. which are over my shoulder here above some other collages so I'm always working at that scale in letter size. Maybe that's my, my English major coming back. <laughs> um, sure. Whoa, something's <laughs> always coming out of the printer, <laughs> but also it's interesting. I just realized in this conversation with you today and you keep bringing up photography. I don't think of myself as a photographer. I think of myself as like a visual note taker almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens to come out as a photo. But I've made photo-based projects just from a point-and-click camera before I had, or a point-and-shoot like digital camera before I had a nice camera on my phone. Photography eludes me. Like I took photo one in undergrad. What did not resonate with me were all of everything about f-stops and and Mm -hmm. the kind of calculation of it all. It wasn't a language that that made a lot of sense to me. Although I love the tactility of winding the film and the dark room and the kind of reveal of the image. But both with printmaking and photography, you get, you can have a serialized or repeated image among various like prints or pages or whatever. And you can, you can mess with those then. And I love that. It's interesting. I've never connected my use of photography to my early love of printmaking that I haven't really revisited. I guess the photography is now a stand-in for printmaking. Mm -hmm. Not that I think of it as photography, but that's in actuality what it is. No, I, th- I think that makes sense. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to uh, offend any photographers out there that actually oh, yeah. know what I'm they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'm no, doing. I feel like a clumsy painter that photographs things. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a tool just like anything else, right? right? So right. Um, we make use of all kinds of tools that like, so we project something that doesn't make us a filmmaker. We're just like using a projector. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be a recorder, but you know. <laughs> So, um, yeah, there, there's just tools of the trade and with technology, anything is fair game, right? Photoshop as well. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of think about this, you know, kind of where you're at now, obviously, you know, we talked very briefly about these non-dominant hand drawings, uh, due to, uh, you know, your, your recent, um, setback, if you will. I don't know how you would describe it, but like, where are you at now? What, what, what's going on in terms of things that you're kind of planning for? I know, again, this is perfect for the new year, right? Oh yeah. Do you have like a, have shows coming up that you're working for? So for listeners, I'm right-handed. That's my dominant hand. And I had surgery on my right index finger on December 16th for a small carcinoma and I had to have a skin graft. So in those days, right coming out of surgery and I'm fine. It's all fine. I'm just healing up. Thankfully, I decided to make some left-handed drawings. I'd never had a necessity to do that before, but I had this, what, what I could consider to be a setback. I decided to make it into an opportunity, right? And I was um, telling David before we got on here that when I was drawing with my left hand, the drawing would kind of flow out of me in a way differently than if I try to sit down and draw directly with my dominant hand. It was like it tapped right into a subconscious sort of thing that was able to happen. So it's something I can use now. And so I am going to have a little show, an actually a little miniature show of small left-handed drawings in a micro gallery in Ann Arbor coming up called Creole Micro Gallery. Mm-hmm. run by Joe Le- Leviticus. So I, I'm going to think of the little kind of, it, it's a little, you know, box, but he's made it into this beautiful lit gallery with a clear glass door. So I have small ceramic work 
and I'm going to make a little environment in there for the drawings. And it's going to be called offhand. I am working on manifesting a research leave for next school year to work on paintings with tiles embedded. I want to make a whole tabletop environment full of cast packing forms in clay. So I have a series of those that will go up on my website soon when I add a ceramic section. And I plan to feature that work in, in a show that's coming up in the distant future. Spring 2004, I'll have a solo show at Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia. Lauren Rice is the point person for that. She's curating that, and I'm very excited about it. I'm working on a book of my recent collages that has exciting writing and design happening. And then uh, I do some curating for a project space in Ipsy called Soft Projects. So that's a, a kind of side project that's very exciting and fun. So we've had some amazing artists, like you featured Mia Risberg on your podcast, and she had a show there uh, in the fall. Jordan Boucher has had a show there um, recently. Um, and then I'm in two shows right now. So one of them opens tonight. It's called There Just Isn't. And that's curated by Brooks Harris Stevens. It's at TSA Tiger Strikes Asteroid Greenville in South Carolina. And that's a great lineup of artists there. And um, there's this group show in West Bloomfield, Michigan at the Janice Cherich Gallery. Rebecca Reeder organized that show. And she is a former student. She happens to be my admin assistant. She's amazing. And that is just like this lineup of the stars. So I'm happy to be included in that as well. And that opens on January 15th. In addition, I'm also fortunate to be part of the Long Island City Studios. So there are roughly nine of us who share a studio in Long Island City, Queens. It's like a timeshare. We make use of the space. We have a shared calendar. We all pay rent together. And Laura Sanders, several of the artists are Columbus-based, Columbus, Ohio. So she's sort of spearheaded the group. And Dinah Higgins is our studio manager on the ground. She works out of the space. And twice yearly, recently, we've had um, open studio events. So look out for those in the spring and potentially the fall as well. Oh, and, and I get to restart ceramic in January coming up soon. So that's exciting because I'm a recent newbie ceramicist. So it's just fun anytime I get to work in clay. So yeah, and obviously, you know, you continue to kind of expand that practice from where you started, you know, all those years ago. So it just kind of you kind of keep getting more hats, if, if you will. Yeah, that that practice was a response to coming out of teaching on zoom for a year, mm -hmm. I just needed to to work with the actual earth itself mm -hmm. and just not have any, any ego involved, kind of like drawing with my left hand, just sit down at a wheel and learn how to throw like a, I love being a student. Actually, I hope I get chances to be a student throughout my life. I think it keeps you nimble and fresh and, and, obviously always learning and adapting. Absolutely. Well, for anybody that wants to kind of like stay up to date, is Instagram kind of like the best place to stay up to date or yeah. where, where should they go? Yeah. So you mentioned my website. So that's amysaxtetter.com. My Instagram account is amysaxtetter underscore studio. There's a link to that on my website. 
And I have like what I call a ceramics journal account on Instagram too. That's object underscore affinity. So that shows my early forays into clay and I'll continue to document that process there too. All right. Well, again, really, I, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface uh, yeah. in some some ways, but um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about your work today and and certainly getting to, to learn a lot more about it. So thanks. Thanks so much. And, you know, thank you for your for your time. Thank you, David. It was such a generous conversation. I appreciate you letting take some some trips down memory lane, too. That was really lovely. Thank you. Thanks once again to Amy for joining me. Please head on over to her website, amysaxetter.com. And of course, be sure to follow on Instagram at amysaxetter underscore studio. And of course, her second account, the journal account is object underscore affinity. That way you can stay up to date with all the exhibitions that are going on. One of them, of course, is 18, a collection of abstract artworks at Janice Carriage Gallery that runs through March 1st. And of course, you can also see her work in There Just Isn't with a number of other great artists at Asteroid Tiger Strikes Gallery in Greensville, South Carolina through February 11th. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to studiobreak.com. Check out the archive of episodes that we have there. Each of those feature works by the artists as well as links to their websites. You can listen to the interviews right there on studiobreak.com or subscribe to the podcast in Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. As announced earlier, we are finally starting a newsletter, so be sure to subscribe there by heading over to studiobreak.com. It'll ask you to just enter that email in there. That way you can stay up to date with all of the stuff going on with Studio Break. Again, that's going to be new episodes, opportunities for artists to show their work at Studio Break Gallery or to share their work on the podcast and much more. I'll be giving away a free painting to one lucky subscriber. So once again, studiobreak.com, subscribe to the newsletter. And of course, while you're doing that, you can also find us on social media. So be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Be sure to follow and say hello. Music for the podcast is by Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. You can find us on Instagram at Golden Shadow Band and a link there for our EP that came out in 2022. You can find more work by following Ben Cohan on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. And of course, find music by following Brett at Brett Beery on Instagram. If you want to see some of my paintings, you don't have to go too far as it's incorporated and rolled into Studio Break. So davidlinaway.com, you shouldn't have to look far. And, of course, follow me in social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at David Linaway. And that's it, folks. We just wrapped a episode for the year. We're super excited to get underway and have all sorts of cool things coming up. Again, hope you sign up for that newsletter to learn about some of the things that are going on with Studio Break, especially some exhibitions that we're excited about this spring and other opportunities. So once again, hope you're crushing it in the studio, staying healthy. We'll talk to you real soon.